So Psalm chapter 133 says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In all sincerity, are there Bibles coming? Because I am feeling bad. There's not Bibles coming. I'm sorry for the false advertising. Yikes. We're going to write the ship around here one step at a time, I promise. <laughs> um, so if you do have a copy of the scripture, just stick your finger in Psalm 133. We're going to bounce around a bunch of other places. All those places will be on the screen, and we'll return to that psalm. We'll come back there, and I'll have you track with me again. Uh, the Warmth of Other Suns is Isabel Wilkerson's modern classic that documents the Great Migration. That is the 60-year stream of black men, women, and children leaving southern slavery in search of some sort of freedom in the north. It is the first ever complete record of what has arguably been the greatest sociological shift in the history of this country. The brilliance of this book, though, is not just the history, it's that it is personal history. Because in addition to studying the facts, she also tracked down the stories, devoting 15 years of her life to interviewing over 12,000 people who personally walked the journey from one end of this country to the other in search of equality. Now, of course, that journey toward equity is a migration that many continue to walk to this very day, so please do not hear me oversimplifying what is still a long journey for so many. But in the end, Wilkerson settled on just three of those stories, and she told the history in bits and pieces around those personal stories. For instance, one of those is George Swanson Starling. He made his way from rural Florida to New York City, where he settled and lived in an apartment in Harlem for the next 50 years. And Wilkerson's point is that his story is also our story. That he had his own unique experience, and yet the path that he walked was a communal one, shoulder to shoulder with so many others. And God authors the biblical story in very much the same way. Every time we open up the Bible, we are reading personal history. When Jesus said, follow me to Peter, Peter dropped his nets, walked away from the safety of the life that he had built on this journey called discipleship. And his story is our story. We too individually are called to risk everything we hold dear, to drop everything that has grown familiar for this life and life to the full through the risk of discipleship to Jesus. So it is personal history. It is new and unique for every individual and it is communal, a path that is shared with so many others. So today is a continuation of last Sunday. It's part two of a brief vision series as we begin a new and significant chapter here for Bridgetown Church. Last week, I shared this new vision that I've been dreaming up for us in a new chapter, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. That's our vision. It's our old vision. It'll be our new vision. It's not going anywhere. It will always be our vision. And that's because the New Testament calls you and I Christians, or calls you and I Christians three times, but it calls you and I disciples 268 times. Christian tends to mean someone who believes or agrees with Jesus' theory. Disciple is what happens when you have the audacity to live that very theory, to live what you believe. Biblical disciples didn't just agree with Jesus' worldview or attend weekly classes with him. They soaked up his entire life. They apprenticed under him. They practiced the way of Jesus. Practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. That's part two, and it's the subject for today. So discipleship begins when an individual hears in response to Jesus' invitation, follow me. And when any disciple begins to walk behind Jesus, one of the first questions they ask is, who invited all these other people? Because discipleship to this rabbi is always worked out in the company of others. And in that way, discipleship is personal history. It is deeply personal. We are picked out from the crowd, personally seen and invited by God himself. And it's entirely communal. We immediately find ourselves in the company of others, and the further we get into this discipleship journey, the more we realize that we need those walking to our right and left. Discipleship requires community. 
And the name for that, a community of disciples following behind Jesus, is the church. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. That's our summary for the individual invitation called discipleship. Practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland, that's how we name that discipleship is not a solo venture, but a communal journey. It is personal history. So Philip Yancey, when attempting to sum up the entire Bible in just a single sentence, went with this. God gets his family back. And I like that. I think that works. Let me just give you the Cliffs notes. Uh, God started his redemption plan with one family, Abraham and Sarah. Through that family, he gives birth to a nation and a promise from God to be a blessing to the world. That promise went something like this, I'll become one of you. I won't just sort out the world's problems from a, safe, from a safe distance. I'll get all the way down into the mess with you. Jesus then shows up as the fulfillment to that promise and the embodiment of that blessing, and he starts by calling disciples. But he did not call 12 disciples on a dozen different solo journeys. It was the same journey. The unspoken implication from this rabbi was, you didn't choose each other, but if you want to follow me, you're stuck with each other. Then when he was asked the greatest commandment, Jesus gave that predictable answer that any rabbi would give. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, probably after a dramatic pause, he said, and a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So according to Jesus, love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable from one another, which we tend to agree with in principle, so long as we don't get too specific about defining who our neighbor actually is, which Jesus went on to do, using a Samaritan as his example. Samaritans were the lowest of the low, according to the ancient Jew. The modern equivalent to that example would be the person furthest from you on the political spectrum, or the person at your office that you are most annoyed at or feel most judgment toward, or maybe the person in this church that when you see them, you avert your eyes and pretend to be on your phone and just hope that the moment passes. That's your neighbor, says Jesus, and you cannot separate loving me from loving him or her. After the resurrection, the church started with Pentecost, when the Spirit fell on everyone in the room and immediately expanded the family from a handful of Jews in one single city to people from every region and sect speaking every kind of language. The New Testament letters are then written uh, to communities on pilgrimage together, not to individuals overwhelmingly. And finally, the Bible ends in Revelation with a wedding reception where many people form one bride. The Bible cover to cover is a story about God redeeming the world through community, not the individual. God gets his family back. And the author of Revelation, John, in another of his writings, penned this summary, God is love. But the kind of love that he calls God is agape. That's the supreme, sacrificial, self-giving kind of love. The, the biblical Greek actually gives us a communal expression of that ancient word agape, koinonia, which means agape shared. It's not just shared between two individuals, but agape shared among a community. And you will find that word peppered all throughout the New Testament. So church is more than just a collection of individuals who attend the same weekly event. It is a collection of individuals participating in the communal God, forming us into a new family. The church is family. What a beautiful metaphor. Now, of course, the trouble with metaphors is that they're always better on paper than in real life. And the only trouble about God getting his family back is that at the end of the day, it feels a whole lot like family. <laughs> and families can be great, but they're also awkward, annoying, dysfunctional, enraging, and sometimes deeply wounding. Family is the human community with the most profound power to heal us and to hurt us to bless us and to curse us, to build us up and to tear us down. And the early church was both sides of that coin. Uh, she was hospitable and loving and generous and sacrificial, but the early church was also an absolute mess. Conflict, segregation, incest, false teaching, cultural colonization, and ignoring the poor. Those are a few of the accusations listed specifically by the writers of the New Testament in the letters to that early church. It was a mess, a lively, compelling mess, but do not mistake it for anything but a mess. Eugene Peterson, after he finished translating the entire Bible, concluded this, there are no successful congregations in Scripture. So given the messiness of the family, maybe discipleship is better lived as a solo journey after all. 
That is increasingly the viewpoint today. You hear a growing sentiment within the church today that goes something like this. I'm into Jesus, but not the church. And so first, I just want to say that so much of the felt experience behind any statement like that is very legitimate. That historically, many, not all, but many Christian churches have been guilty of financial corruption, of sponsoring war, of racism, of manipulation, of abuse in every variety, just to name a few. And that's tragic on a large scale, but the great tragedy is the individuals beneath it, the individuals for whom the church family has been a dysfunctional and wounding family. And so if that is your story, I just wanna say as a, a leader in the Christian church, I'm so, so sorry. That is not the heart of our rabbi, and that is not the heart of this church. And secondly, I do want to be clear that the major problem with I'm into Jesus but not the church is Jesus. It's that if you're really into Jesus, you know that for him the church was never optional. Jesus was not anti-institutional. He regularly led his followers into the two religious institutions present in the first century, the synagogue and the temple. And those institutions' faults are well documented. And despite his own legitimate criticism of the church of his day, Jesus did not abandon the church of his day. Now, he didn't turn a blind eye and pretend that everything was okay, but he didn't boycott the place either. He kept on showing up. He kept praying with people in the pews. He kept receiving the word in the context of brothers and sisters. Jesus' disciples followed him to all those places that the corrupt temple would never touch. They walked with him to the leper colony and to, into company with sex workers and to Gentile cities, and they followed him into that very imperfect temple for Passover and the other religious festivals and to pray the daily fixed hours and each Sabbath for worship. And after his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus' disciples kept on showing up at those places. So if you're looking for a church of just me and God and my moleskin and a cup of coffee in the park on Sunday morning, or just me and my buddies at a coffee shop with our favorite podcast preacher, you will not find that in the mouth of Jesus or on the pages of the New Testament. Following Jesus means following him into communities of healing who are also riddled with the disease. Why wasn't Jesus willing just to throw out the church of his time, even though there was such a legitimate mess? What do you miss out on if, if you separate yourself from the company of messed up disciples? Well, there's a few things. First, you miss out on shared revelation. Uh, a friend of mine named Edwin, a, a fellow pastor, was once preaching, and right in the middle of his sermon, uh, the back door of the church just flies open, bangs against the wall, and a woman staggers in and looks like she isn't entirely sure where she is. And then she stumbles right down the center aisle of the church and makes her way all the way to the empty uh, second row, right near the front, and sits down. And when she does, there's a visible huge patch of dried vomit on her shirt. She's smelling so strongly that Edwin can smell her from the stage as he's teaching. And then she just begins audibly snoring with her head against the back pew, loud enough for half the room to hear her. But here's the thing. Edwin spent hours preparing these words in his office. So he's not going down without a fight. He's just powering through, you know, just keeping it going. And then Mercedes, a woman from his congregation, gets out of her seat, walks down the same center aisle, sits down next to this woman in plain view of everyone else and just puts her arm around her, leans down and kisses her on the shoulder and just begins to rub her back as she continues to snore and Edwin continues to preach. She's right there in full view of the whole congregation just loving and nurturing this woman who appears to be intoxicated enough that she's not gonna remember this gesture at all. And Edwin finished preaching these words that he had spent hours crafting, the very words that would go out on podcast to everyone who couldn't make it in person that day. And he knew that, that was the sermon. It was Mercedes who was preaching that Sunday, not him. That was the sermon. And that's what I mean by shared revelation. I mean that gathering together cannot just be seamlessly reproduced on a podcast or a live stream because the sermon is preached by the community, not just by the pastor. 
I mean, part of receiving a sermon is receiving it while you're sitting next to an elderly man who grunts every 30 seconds and won't stop shifting his weight. Or, or while you're trying to pay attention, but a baby's crying. Or, or while you're praying and responding, but that guy has horrific coffee breath. All of that is the sermon, too. Because God is revealed not just through the carefully prepared words of a pastor, but through the mess of the family. We receive from God in the family of God. Secondly, the shared mission. In his book, Tribe, Sebastian Younger tracks data arguing that U.S. soldiers returning from the war in Afghanistan may be more commonly diagnosed with PSD by returning from war to a hyper-individualistic society than they were from their experiences at war. In other words, the data points to the fact that when deployed overseas, they were a part of a tight-knit community with a shared mission, and the removal of that may be more psychologically distressing than the violence of war itself. David Brooks, a New York Times columnist writing on the same theme, says this, we are all fragile when we don't know what our purpose is. We haven't thrown ourselves into a with abandon into a social role, when we haven't committed ourselves to certain people, when we feel like a swimmer in an ocean with no edge. If you really want to make people tough, make them idealistic for some cause, make them tender for some other person, make them committed to some worldview that puts today's temporary pain in the context of a larger hope. Emotional fragility seems like a psychological problem, but it has only a philosophical answer. People are really tough only after they have taken a leap of faith for some truth or mission or love. Once they've done that, they can withstand a lot. We live in an age when it's considered sophisticated to be disenchanted. But people who are enchanted are the real tough cookies. See, something comes alive in us when we're on mission together in community, and something dies in us when we take a decidedly communal mission and try to live it alone. And then finally, we miss out on shared harmony. After 28 years of dividing a city and a country, the Berlin Wall finally came down in 1989, just before the holidays. And so on Christmas Day of that same year, Leonard Bernstein composed a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Century in Berlin. And it was televised across the world. People with no connection, no taste for classical music, people who spoke a different language and a different culture, all had the hair on the backs of their necks standing up while they played that tune. It was a spectacle, a triumph of unity happening right on top of the rubble of division. Not a dry eye behind a single television screen watching musicians who had been forced to live in separation for half a generation now harmonizing together with their instruments as they were able to come back together. You see, there's something uh, about the collective harmony of everyone playing their part that draws out the human soul in a way the most gifted soloist never can. It's what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about when it says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. See, without love, the sacrificial, lay-down-my-life kind of love, the, the welcome you to my table on the very night you'll betray me, restore you even when you left me to fend for myself in my hour of greatest need, the resilient sort of love that refuses to quit, without that kind of love, the rest of our faith just doesn't harmonize. All of our acts of justice and mercy, all of our songs of praise, all of our morning readings and evening prayers, they're all just noise. Love expressed in the context of community is the composer of the spiritual life. And without it, the best we're ever going to be is like an out-of-tune tuba or a squeaky violin. But with love, we are a symphony steadily building toward crescendo. Everything bows its knee to love expressed between brothers and sisters in the spiritual life. I'm into Jesus, but not the church. We tend to think of that as a modern phenomenon, but it's actually an ancient temptation. In the fifth century, St. Benedict uh, wrote his rule, and there's a brief aside in it where he comments on various trends in the church of his day. And there's a, a moment when he speaks to a monastic group called the Gyrovegs, who wander from region to region, staying at various local monasteries for three or four nights, and then moving on. They are forever interested, but never rooted. They dabble in the monastic life. They sincerely desire Jesus, but they refuse to commit themselves to any local community. St. Benedict calls them slaves to their own wills and gross appetites. 
which lands a touch sharp for my taste, but this was 1,500 years ago. But his description, it does sound familiar, doesn't it? Bouncing from one community to the next, never able to root in a home for a long time, listening to this or that podcast, spending six months or a year in this church and then moving on to the next, making a friend or two in the community but never entering into a community of people that I did not hand select. And his point stands today that apart from a real, local, rooted, ordinary, frequently disappointing, often underwhelming, and in the end, familial context, we stunt our own spiritual growth. See, without the church, not the flavor of the month, new community, or your favorite preacher, the church, we cannot be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. In the words of Henry Nouwen, the church will never cease to get in the way of Jesus but it will also never cease to be the way of Jesus. See, the church is a family, and you don't choose your siblings. You choose your friends, you choose your colleagues to some level. All of your other communal experiences outside of family involve your choice to some degree or another, but family, you're just born into that. You don't choose your brothers and sisters, but you're stuck with them, like it or not. You don't choose your siblings, but you do choose how you will participate and relate to those siblings, though. Am I going to love them and know them, choose gentleness and compassion toward them, keep up with them even when it's hard, fight through awkwardness to stay close to them, or I could be that distant sister who only shows up for the holidays and is always the first to leave, or it could be that awkward and overbearing uncle who always brings up controversial topics and then holds the whole living room hostage with another lecture. Or it could be that needy son who who calls when he needs something but is strangely absent when he's fine. Or it could be the absent cousin who keeps the family name but disassociates apart from that. A name in common but nothing else. You're stuck with family. But you choose how to participate with family. And Psalm 133 offers us instructions for how to relate to one another, how to become an agape kind of people. And here's the two key ingredients, oil and dew. So now I'll return to that psalm, and if you'll follow along with me. First, let's take a look at oil. How good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Gerald's beard. No, sorry, Aaron's beard. Down on the collar of his robe. I couldn't resist. I didn't write that down. It just came to me because the beard is working. Am I the only one? He came back from vacation, and I was like, there's more authority. I don't know what it is. All right. So this picture of oil running down Aaron's beard onto his robe, it comes from Exodus chapter 29, when Aaron, who is a fallen, flawed, imperfect person, was anointed as priest over Israel. Oil is one of the primary biblical images for God's presence. Later, it's used by the prophets as imagery for the Holy Spirit and and stays that way throughout the New Testament. So when the oil was poured over Aaron, it was this community's affirmation, God has anointed you with his spirit for this work. You are our priest. And when, when Aaron went on to use anointing oil to pour out on anyone else, which was one of the primary tasks of uh, a Levitical priest, it was the same statement. God has anointed you with his spirit for this work. You are a co-worker with us in the redemption of all things. And we recognize and affirm that in you. This is who you are. This is how he sees you. And therefore, this is how we, your family, see you. The very first instruction is this. Become each other's priests. That's what oil means. We become each other's priests. And what Israel did with oil, the the early church went on to do through the word or the title saint, which is not a word that we use very much anymore. But saint is literally translated holy one. In fact, a lot of our modern English translations just read holy people in place where the original translations read saint. Biblically, it doesn't mean someone who's perfect or pious. It just means someone who's dedicated or committed. It's an identity word, not an ethical word. And it's the term used to refer to the church in, I'm sorry, the church community in nine of the New Testament letters. Saint is all over the place. And that's particularly surprising because as we already pointed out, these people were a mess. 
They were drunk at communion. They were disconnected from the plight of the poor. They were sexually promiscuous and judgmental and unforgiving. And all those people get letters from their pastor. And it says this, to the saints. Saints? Are you kidding me? These people are a part of the problem. These people are at the very center of the problem. No, no, no. Saint. That's how God sees you. And so that's how we, your family, see you. I find the English novelist Reynolds Price's definition of of the term saint helpful. He says, A saint is someone who, however flawed, leads by example, almost never by words, to imagine the hardest thing of all, the seamless love of God for all of creation, including ourselves. Jesus is the head of the church. The spirit convicts. The father draws the lost to himself. What's our part? What is left for us to do as brothers and sisters? We are each other's priests. Saint, that's who you are. And don't you dare forget it. Saint, that's how I see you. In spite of everything I know and everything I don't know, that's how he sees you, so that's how I see you too. Saint, Sure, you've got plenty of work to do, and the Spirit will do that from within you so long as you don't forget who you are. Saint, that's your part, and it's mine. We are each other's priests. And then secondly, there's this other image, that of do. Returning to the psalm, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now again, we've got an outdated image here. Hermon was the highest peak in this ancient region. It was at such an altitude that if you camped there overnight, you would wake up drenched, but never because of rain, always because of the heavy morning dew that would fall. And this entire region, which was primarily a desert, depended on that dew to flow down the mountain in order for their crops to grow. So the peak from which the dew fell was visible from every street corner in the city, and it represented hope and expectation. It was the people's very livelihood, this peak. So here's the second instruction in the psalm. Look at your brothers and sisters always with eyes of hope and expectation. Eugene Peterson says, a community of faith flourishes when we view each other with this expectancy, wondering what God will do today in this one, in that one. It should be impossible to grow bored in the family of God because right now there is a unique, never foretold redemption story happening in you and in me. Have you forgotten that? That's what you see when you look at me and that's what I see when I look at you. And for the past couple of years, just for spiritual nourishment for my own soul, I've attended a monthly AA meeting, always with this one particular friend uh, who's my in, a a really close friend of mine. It's his community. He sneaks me in as a really well-meaning imposter every once in a while. And it is the most truly diverse community that I have ever seen in my life. Old and young, rich and poor, race, ethnicity, class, culture, you name it. And they're not trying to be diverse. They're trying to be broken. And that's the secret. I'm James. I'm an addict. I'm Maggie, alcoholic. That introduction is a reminder that the common denominator in here is grace. We are all here because we're all in need of grace, and they remind each other of that every time someone speaks. That's the same common denominator when you come to church, but we tend to forget it. Every 12-step meeting that I go to, my, my friend will introduce me to someone, and then it will go something like this. The person will walk away and say, oh, that's Mark. Insane story. Works in sales. Had crazy background, but then... Got 30 years sober now, restored relationship with his daughter, knows all four of his grandkids, visits them every Saturday. It's really beautiful. These people know each other. They they really know each other. They know what each person values, the holes each person's been in, and the habits each person keeps. They know each other. How does that happen? They never lose fascination in one another's unfolding redemption stories. We've all had plenty of transactional relationships where someone uses us uh, for what they can get out of us to fill some function in their lives. We've all been judged or boxed in a time or two. We felt categorized. We've all been treated as less than we are. And some of us in that kind of company have actually become less than we are. But we've also known the company of a person or two who isn't trying to use us but to know us who moves slowly enough to actually listen to us, who sees, affirms, and draws out what is truest within us. 
And there's a name for that second kind of person, the Dew of Hermon, the greatest source of all wonder and fascination you have is the other people in this church. So we have to recover wonder for what God is doing in one another. We have to recover a sense of fascination about the unfolding themes of grace in him and in her. That's an agape kind of family. So I wanna, I wanna call you to a few things today as we move into a new chapter together. I wanna call us to make a few shifts in the way that we commonly relate as a, as a church family. And the first is from ideal to actual. The greatest enemy to real community is the ideal community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the love of the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. The church we want quickly becomes the enemy of the church that we actually have. The greatest enemy to who Bridgetown Church is becoming might just be who you think Bridgetown Church should become. Because until we can love one another as we actually are, messy and incomplete, underwhelming and apathetic, well-intentioned but flaky, we cannot grow into who God is inviting us to become. Until I can love you without you demanding that you change or grow in some way, and you can love me just as I am, we're dead in the water. We love to dream. We love to retell the stories of extraordinary impact from the very high points of church history. And sometimes God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But more often, God uses ordinary people to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. And loving the actual community that we're in just as she is, that is the dream that gives birth to everything else. Secondly, the second shift from inspiration to perseverance. William Butler Yeats wrote a heartbreaking poem titled, Why Should Not Old Men Be Mad? And it's written from the perspective of this old man who's looking back on his life and he's seeing not a single story with a finish worthy of the start, in his own words. He retells the story of a gifted young woman who becomes an angry alcoholic journalist and then a brilliant spiritual seeker who has her, her soul shriveled in, un, in an unhappy marriage, and then a compassionate young woman who becomes an angry soapbox preacher, and this old man is looking back, searching but not finding a finish worthy of the start. Good starts are everywhere. They're not unique. What's unusual is to persevere. The holy thing, the part requiring Jesus and community is not the start, it's the finish. And so our ambition as a church should not be a promising start, but it should be a finish worthy of such a promising start. Uh, the captivating aspect of the early church wasn't her vision. Anyone can get inspired. What was unique about them was their perseverance. It's that they kept after the vision even after the inspiration had worn off. Promising starts are easy. Good endings require commitment and they're hard, but it's worth it. That's why the letters to the New Testament churches unapologetically talk about the need to bear with. Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive each other if, one, if any one of you has a grievance against someone. The exact phrase is repeated in Ephesians 4. And the English bear with is the Greek anekomai, which no matter how you translate it, doesn't get any softer. It means to be patient with, to put up with, endure, bear with. What's the pathway to your compelling vision becoming a reality? You gotta put up with each other. Just endure that guy. That's what scripture teaches. An ending worthy of the start requires us to bear with one another through the middle. It means that we forgive and ask forgiveness, that we allow space for him to mature and we're allowed that same space. It means we love to learn to love each other and acknowledge that sometimes it does take learning to love and when all else fails, we just endure each other's company. Good endings require perseverance, but it's worth it. There's a woman named Jane who started a ministry serving adult children with severe autism in the church that I led in Brooklyn. 
And she was a therapist who specialized in working with that population. And so she trained and equipped a team of volunteers within our church. And then the same sanctuary that would be buzzing with kingdom life on Sundays was buzzing with a different but equally good kind of kingdom life the following day. It was just friendship. That's all it was. That's all we could offer. We played games and broke bread. We, we dignified the individuals who came by asking questions and listening. We just engaged them on the level they could communicate with us. And I developed a particular bond with this one uh, young man named Ryan. And in addition to seeing him at these meetings, he would write me letters each week. And eventually his non-believing parents began to commute over an hour to attend our church on Sundays because it was the only place that their adult son had ever been loved. And they were watching as he was flourishing. And all of that started with Jane. Because she had a heart for these forgotten individuals. And she brought that heart to her community. But Jane's heart actually came from a relationship to her brother who lived with severe autism. So growing up in that family alongside him was challenging in so many ways for her as a young girl. It was far more challenging than if she'd had a brother who hadn't been afflicted. But it was also such a gift because learning to patiently, presently love her own brother brought out the very best in Jane over the years. And then by proxy, she brought the very best of herself to the rest of us. So the very best of Jane grew out of objectively the weakest member of her family. And it has been observed in family systems theory that the least gifted member of a family, the one presenting the greatest challenge to the others and requiring the most patience from, from every other member is also the one who enriches that family the most. Ask any family with a mentally or physically handicapped brother or sister the effect that individual has had on the family as a whole, and you will hear a whole lot about challenges and patience and endurance, and you will hear about a depth of compassion and understanding. The kingdom of God views strength so different than the world around us does, but to receive those gifts, the ones that come through challenge at first and are most treasured in the end, requires perseverance. What if God's greatest gift to you in this community is the person you find most difficult in this community? See, what I'm trying just to be really upfront and honest with you about is that community is hard, but it's worth it. Community requires forgiveness. It requires a stubborn sense of resilience and good old-fashioned grit and commitment. And community hurts, but it's worth it. So the final shift then is from distant to close. It's been said so many times, distance makes the heart grow fonder, mostly by people in really difficult long distance relationships who are trying to justify and make it work. <laughs> but it has been said. But one of the stark truths exposed by the pandemic is that within a community, distance makes the heart grow harder. Empathy tends to erode when I can't look you in the eye and vice versa. Because I make decisions about you that become facts in my mind and you cannot humanize those by, by actually being in the same place present with me and relating to me. And when my distant impressions of you cannot be upended by personal interaction, hardness of heart comes naturally and gentleness of spirit has to be worked on. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to write someone off when you don't have to interact with them face to face? Or how quickly the hard heart grows soft with just one real conversation with that person you're so frustrated with. So would it be all right if I just speak into this pastorally on behalf of the family for a moment? Can you give me permission to do that? As a community of brothers and sisters that are navigating a pandemic, we are in real danger of relating to one another through pride rather than empathy. And pride, expressed in a community, sees the wrongs of others without identifying with their weaknesses. But empathy identifies with one another's strengths and weaknesses, with their whole person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, only love gets close enough to know. Hebrews chapter 10 gives us this instruction. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. This is the Apostle Paul's most passive-aggressive moment. I love it. Don't give a meeting together like some people are doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. 
Do not miss the simplicity of this invitation. How do we get the world's attention, make disciples, form a counterculture, and reap a spiritual harvest? You got to keep getting together. How do we deposit courage in one another, survive hardship, embrace joy, raise healthy children, and conquer loneliness? Keep getting together. Well, how do we live missionally and serve the poor and overturn the tables of injustice and welcome the lost into the family and see the kingdom come in Portland as it is in heaven? Keep getting together. That's not the end, but it is the key ingredient that binds everything else together. Only love gets close enough to know. So we have to keep getting together. In conclusion, Richard Halverson sums all this up saying, Christianity began in Galilee as a fellowship of men and women centered on Jesus Christ. It went to Greece and became a philosophy. It went to Rome and became an institution. It went to Europe and became a culture. It came to America and became an enterprise. We need to get back to our roots. Back to our roots. That's more fruitful, it's more powerful, it's more compelling, and it is slower and more expensive. It's slower. It takes much longer to become than to produce. And it's more expensive because the cost is shared by all of us. This requires sacrificial, present love from every last one of us, not just a particularly winsome personality with a microphone. It's harder, it's slower, it's more expensive, and I would not settle for anything less. Let's get back to our roots. So one of the reasons that we do a vision series every year is because we believe that the church is a family. And if you're new around here, we want you to know and understand the family history. And our church turns over by about a third every year. And if you add COVID on top of that, it's a pretty good guess that about 50% of the people that consider Bridgetown home are relatively new right now. And we want you to know who this family is and what this family values. And this teaching in particular is a family teaching. So if you're sitting here thinking, listen, man, I'm not even sure what I think about Jesus. I just want you to know that you're welcome here. Yeah. That, that you are welcome to belong in this community at any and every phase of belief and unbelief. You're welcome here. But if you do consider Bridgetown family, we want you to know what it means to fully participate in this family. And so if there's resonance in you as I'm teaching today, if there's any part of you saying, yes, I, I want that, then I would just say there's five things that we'd ask of you, five commitments that we'd ask you to make, and this is the more expensive cost that we all have to share. So here's those five commitments. First, that you would practice the way of Jesus that you would actually organize your life around the primary goal of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Secondly, together in Portland, we organize our church and smaller Bridgetown communities that meet midweek around the table. That's how we live out this communal vision. And if uh, you're currently not in a Bridgetown community or you've just lapsed and kind of dropped off the map, the way in is through basics. Uh, our next basics course is happening the first Sunday in October. That is the third. You can sign up online. You do not want to miss that. That is the front door and the way in. And if you're already in a Bridgetown community, I just invite you to recommit to that same community as we move into a new chapter. And I do not want to miss the opportunity to say and to name this, that there's been a growing and shared sense that on top of this incredible foundation of discipleship and formation, that we are building a next chapter of prayer, presence, and mission. So beginning next week, we will spend two and a half months going into our final practice demonstrating the gospel, where we'll get into that specifically. But I want you to hear me say this today, that the Holy Spirit moves us to the margins. And so we will become a people of justice, mercy, and mission around here. But do you know where that starts? It starts around the table yeah. in communities. Because justice is not a church program. Justice is not an abstract concept. Justice is a person, and his name is Jesus. And justice is both expressed and discovered personally along relational lines. And so we have to start with proximity. And one of our dreams is that over the course of this fall, every one of our Bridgetown communities would become proximate to the neediest people and places in our city. We want to get close enough to know. So when you prioritize a Bridgetown community, you're also prioritizing mission because the two go hand in hand around here. And I want you to know that. Third commitment is to gather on Sundays. Uh, we actually ask that you would prioritize the Sunday worship gathering because we believe that we are formed by our coming together. And look, of course, you're gonna travel and do all those sorts of things. You've got other things happening in your life, but when you're here in the city, we ask that you would prioritize coming together 
as a family. And we gather together three times every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. here on the east side and at 6 p.m. downtown. It's the same staff, the same leadership, and the same teaching at every one of those gatherings. But specifically, I just want to highlight the 6 p.m. gathering downtown today. And that's for the sake of, of history and of prophecy. So first, history. We are in a defining moment, maybe the defining moment in the history of this church. And our history gets traced all the way back to First Baptist Church in downtown Portland. That's where our worship culture was shaped. That's where our values were first named. That's where many of you had pivotal experiences that have shaped you to this day. And so in this defining moment, there will be some among us who are called not to the new building, but to go back to our roots, to preserve what has always been. And that matters. So will you pray about where God might be inviting you to worship? And then secondly, because of prophecy, a prophetic posture, downtown Portland has been a spectacle of chaos of late. And so as a church that's been meeting downtown for more than a decade before that, we believe that we're called to be light in the midst of darkness. And I don't mean that in some like ultra fearful Bible thumping kind of way. I mean that in a for such a time as this excited kind of way. Because in the Gospels, Jesus' ministry was always most powerful in the most unlikely places. And throughout church history, the church has thrived not in the most ideal conditions, but in the most hostile conditions. So I'm wondering, can we push all of our chips in on saying, do it again, Lord, this time right here in Portland? And one way that we can embody that posture, that we can just make our coming and going into a prayer, is to choose to make downtown Portland at 6 p.m. on Sunday nights your place of worship. So will you just pray and hold before God about where are you inviting me to worship? What role am I called to play in this family in this season? Fourth commitment is to serve. 99% of what we do on Sun, or I'm sorry, do throughout the week is volunteer run. It takes all of us to be the church. And that does involve when we gather on Sundays, but it also involves things like community leaders. We've got approximately 80 communities meeting around tables scattered throughout the four quadrants of our city. And we need more community leaders. So if you're interested in that, you can indicate that when you register for basics. You can sign up or you can send an email to community at bridgetown.church. But there's all sorts of ways to serve. You can serve with Foster Parents Night Out or our Refugee Care Collective in our kids' ministry or our musical worship team at prayer on Tuesday or Thursday mornings and through setup before our gatherings. There's so many ways to serve. So if you're a member of the family, get your hands dirty somewhere. And as a church that's coming through COVID, every last one of our serving teams has significantly shrunk. So Tyler, where's the real need in this church? Literally everywhere. Just, just pick somewhere and jump in. And if you're already serving, thank you. Um, and then finally, the last commitment is just to give. That we're, we're a church in the most ancient sense. And that includes being a people of generosity. We exist entirely. Every last thing we do on the generosity of the family. Now, 10% or tithing is the biblical watermark, uh, but just start wherever you're at. If you're not giving at all, beginning to give 1% of your income would be phenomenal. If you've been giving 10% for so long that's an auto-draft that you never even think about, maybe this is a moment to consider giving more in a way that you feel and, and actually incorporates the worship of your heart. And this is honestly the stickiest one of these commitments to talk about as a pastor at any moment, but especially as a new pastor getting to know a new family, this is a tough one to name, but I believe in the generosity of the body. I live it myself, and I will never call or invite you to anything that I am not living myself. So in review, what does it mean to be a full participant in the Bridgetown family? It means we practice the way of Jesus together in Portland. We gather on Sundays, we serve, and we give. And we are inviting you back together in person. But that's going to be more of a process than it's going to be a moment. And so if you're immunocompromised or you're just totally uncomfortable in one or more of these spaces, I get it. This is my first pandemic. And it's yours too. So we've all got to have grace and make room for one another. And so if that is you, I would just say just pick one. Just pick one way of engagement where you're currently disengaged and commit to that this fall. And if you want to know which one, I'm pushing for communities because I ache for the havoc on our souls from relational isolation. So just get in a community around a table with a small group of people you can trust and follow Jesus with a few others. Some of those people will become your best friends. Others of them you would have never invited, but you didn't send out the invitations. Jesus did. 
And those that you wouldn't have invited, if you stick with them, will become the ones that are most formative in your life in the end. So let me close with this. The disciples who marched to Jerusalem with Jesus were sure that they were right on the edge of breakthrough. They had heard all those stories of Moses meeting God face to face on the mountain, of Elijah calling down fire on the mountain, and now one better than Moses, one better than Elijah was here, and they were right on the front row. Even at the Last Supper, Jesus is trying to prepare them for the cross, and they're arguing about who's going to be remembered as greatest after the revival. And then Jesus essentially says at that very meal, it's all going to happen. And it's going to be even better than you dream it will be. But it's going to come through a different way than you think it's coming. Here's the invitation. Love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So what if this is the mountaintop? To simply, tangibly, sacrificially love one another. What if we're dreaming about what the kingdom will be like when it comes, but Jesus says to us what he said to them, the kingdom is in your midst. What if we're standing right on the mountaintop right now, but we don't even realize it? What if we've been living on the mountaintop and it's simply to love him or her? I love this poem by Robert Siegel titled Look for Mount Monadnock. And and the inspiration of the poem was that he and his wife lived near Mount Monadnock State Park. And they'd always see cars turning in by the sun. They lived next to it for years, but they never went in. And so one day as they're driving by without a rush to be anywhere else, he says, Robert says to his wife, why don't we go in and see this mountain for ourselves? And so they turn in and I'll pick up midway through the poem. We head down the side road, Monadnock Realty, Monadnock Pottery, Monadnock Designs, but no Monadnock. Then the signs fall away, nothing but trees and the darkening afternoon. We don't speak, pass a clearing, and you say, I think I saw it, or a part of it, a bald rock. Miles and miles more, finally I pull over and we consult a map. Monadnock's right there. We're just a bit back there, but we should see it. We're practically on top of it. And driving back, we look. Trees, a flash of clearing, purple rock, but we are, it seems, too close to see it. It is here. We are on it. It is under us. See, they couldn't find the mountain because they were on the summit. They were living on the summit all along and never knew it. What if this is the mountaintop? What if there is no better future or no one day when we'll be the church of your imagination or mine? What if this, you and me, in all of our weaknesses and our strengths and all of our good and our bad and all of our blind spots and our failures, what if love in the midst of this is the kingdom coming? What if we've been standing on the mountaintop all along but we've just been too close to see it and it's choosing kindness when sarcasm is on the tip of my tongue? It's befriending the lonely one when sticking with my group would be easier. It's forgiving the one who's wronged me, even though maybe she doesn't even see it or recognize it. It's calling someone saint when mocking them would be easier. It's maintaining a holy imagination toward my brothers and sisters when judgment is just coming so naturally. It's keep getting together. This is the mountain. It is here. We are on it. It is under us.